0: All alone, I'm sitting in the park and you know you really left your mark on me On me hey everybody, this is Andrew Wicklander, uh, the founder of Ideal Project Group, and I am here again. Another episode of What Can a Project Manager Learn from X, and in this episode, I am interviewing uh, an author, Tracy Bianchi, who uh, has recently published a book titled Green Mama. So, Tracy, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast.
1: No problem. Good to be here, Andrew.
0: So, um, so as I was mentioning to Tracy before we or to Tracy before we get get started, um, that. You know, I'm going to kind of spend probably the first half of the uh, the conversation talking about, like, you know, some of the stuff that's in her book and then probably move into the process of, of it being made and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Green Mama is a book about sort of how um, families can begin to live uh, more greenly, so to speak. But why don't you go ahead and just kind of give a, you know, give your intro to the book and what you would say about yeah. it.
1: My spiel? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> um,
1: the the subtitle actually says more about the book. Uh, it's called The Guilt-Free Guide to Saving the Planet. And um, the whole book came out of the idea that people are pretty much inundated with all these little green tips. And there's a bunch of people out there that love the idea of being green. And... There's also an army of people that just can't stand the idea because it's just one more thing to do and it's kind of in your face all the time. So this was sort of a look at what is actually worth pursuing and what the average person can do and if we're not all going to pack up and you know carry like a hemp handbag and become organic farmers, like right. <laughs> what, what can we really do from the suburbs or the city um, to make a difference without driving ourselves crazy? So.
0: Right. So, yeah. so and that's so, like a, uh, a theme that you kind of hit on right from the start. I mean, you, you sort of you started off the book by, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but um, something to the effect of like, so look for some of you this is going to be not green enough, and for others of you this is going to be like too much effort, and you know you sort of say from the beginning, it almost seems like you know, hey, this is what I do, and this is what seems to be working for me, and it and it, and it matters, and you know, that's a book about about that. Is that like a fair?
1: Yep, it is, because there's people at each end of the spectrum, and so people on either end are going to be probably frustrated with it because it either goes too far for some or not far enough for others. And so it was trying to capture what I think is pretty much like 80% of the rest of the country that's kind of in between on this stuff. And so, yeah, that's pretty fair fair um, right. way to sum it up. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So, and this is the, – the timing of this is good also, by the way, because I I was at the – the Green Festival at Navy Pier this weekend.
1: Yes, yes. How was that?
0: Um, it was it was good. I'm glad I went. I enjoyed it. Um, but as an event, as a whole, like, so some of the stuff that you write about in your book that, that I really liked a lot is that, you know, you bring up the question of, of like, consumption a lot, right? Yeah. And, like, by doing something, are you really – are you really – is that really better or not, you know? And so – the whole thing with the festival is that it's still like to, I mean, it's totally based around like consumption, right? It's, so it's it's around consuming like better things, right? <laughs> like, yeah. But it's still like based on consumption, so there's there's a lot of like paradoxical stuff going on with that, you know?
1: There is consumption is is the like least green model I think we can have, which is. capitalist country is pretty scary to say that but it's like like there's no point in saying well here's a green product so just consume this we're really like one of the most green things you can do is just not to consume stuff like not to race out and buy the next gadget not to buy a new home or all those other sorts of things so yeah consumption is what's killing us really It's one of the major
0: things. Yeah, I mean, there was a there. There's there's part of your in part of your book. You 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 say something to the effect of, you know, like it makes no sense to move into a LEED certified house if like the (laughs) result is that you're going to need to commute like forty miles or thirty miles each way to work. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And you're living away from like you know people who. Like, people move into some of these crazy communities that are so far away from everything else in their life and they spend half their life in the car. And yeah, you can have some great new home that, like you said, is LEED certified, but if it doesn't connect to any other part of your life and you, you had to build new and tear down, you know, an ecosystem to build that house, like it's pretty pointless, you know? Right,
0: right. So, yeah. Well, and the the commuting thing, I have like a special hatred for, Right. So, um, I mean, I really like that you wrote a lot about commute, like, you know, that you touched on commuting as a sort of major source of a problem just in not just like the energy use, but the way that it affects our families and everything, you know, and like what, what we're taking the time away from and everything.
1: It does. I mean, we spend, I think it's, it's almost an hour a day, you know, um, I think it's, like, a little shy of an hour a day one way or something like that in yeah. the average commute. Right. It's just insane. And so, you know, how much time do people spend in their cars? And, and we're married to our cars. Like, I know people who I love dearly who live near me who will, like, get in their car and drive two blocks to run an errand. And it's like, oh, come on. Right. <laughs> Granted, February in Chicago, I will drive two blocks, 20 below zero. I'm not that hardcore. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah,
0: well, I think their cars. Yeah. But I mean, so, and when I say I have like a special hatred for the commuting is because I, so I work in an industry where that being, you know, technology and like, yeah, you know, the whole website building, you know, yeah, building, you know, doing projects and that kind of stuff. And I think m- most people live in this world now, right? I mean, a lot of people are, you know, going to work and sitting in cubicles at a computer. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the other things that you talk about in the book is like examining, you know, your your traditions. And you talk about it like in the tra- in sort of the context of family, right? And how, right. you know, you talk about whether it's smart to re- like do we really need to wrap Christmas presents in paper? <laughs> right. right.
1: Right. Like <laughs> sometimes uh, why bother? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so it's just it was it was really I mean, it was a really uh, interesting way to look at the uh, the same, like, problem, but through just a different lens, you know? Yep. Um, yep. Because a lot of people that work at a, in a cubicle in front of a computer, the only reason that their workplace requires that they work there is just, like, out of habit, right? That's what they've always done in is the it, past.
1: Yeah, it's what they've always done. And there's I feel like there's this sort of fear that, you know, like, the whole like, big brothers watching, like, somehow, like, some employee going to be a vagabond if they're working from home, but, right. like, nine out of ten people I know who do work at home and, like, most people that I know that work at home have, like, a home office split, yeah. and they'll do some days in and some days out, and they all, hands down, talk about how they get so much more accomplished at home because there's not the interruptions that they get sometimes in the office, so it's fascinating what we, like, hang on to in the corporate world that is just odd and misplaced, I think, sometimes.
0: Right, right. So, well, that, thats kind of like a little bit of a good segue into, you know, some of the the things that you went through to get the book made, and we'll we'll keep talking about like, you know, the sort of the the, the themes that you weave throughout the book, and see if we can kind of tie them into this conversation too. Um, yeah. But so there's there's a there's a a few things that you mentioned in the book that I'm curious about that we can maybe like use that to, to launch this part of the conversation. So in it, you talk you talk at one point about how like it's important to do, you know, do one thing at a time or choose one thing in, in, in the chapters. You have the, you know, one thing to think about with this chapter and one thing that you're going to do. Um, but you talk about how you, you sort of in the course of a day, you might come up with like 10 projects that you're going to start off with. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. – you know, you or you start a project, and then you uh, a couple of days goes by, and you started another one, and that other one is still sitting there. Um, but this project, writing the book, right? There's a lot that goes into writing a book, right? I mean, you you got to write it, <laughs> and yeah. then research so, it, everything. Yeah. So, what was it about this project that made it something that you know that wasn't um, wasn't one that got abandoned right and yeah. why, did, why did you stick with it and then how did you you know sort of just tell, tell us the story of how you got started and where it went
1: you know it was a it was one of those random bizarre connections that happened in your professional life where suddenly you find yourself going in a direction you never intended um, I was asked to do some freelance writing for magazines and in a million years never thought I'd be writing a book and went to get a couple of glamour grammar tips at a writing conference and ended up meeting an editor who, you know, said he had an idea for a book and I had this, but I hadn't planned on ever actually writing it. And so I was like, well, yeah, here's my idea. And the guy loved it. And so it was this sort of like I tripped into, um, actually getting a publisher, which is a pretty challenging thing to do. So I feel pretty lucky that that happened so easily for me. And then, you know, when you get it, was all new to me. And so I was scared to miss a deadline because I didn't know anything about publishing. Later I come to find out that publishing deadlines are kind of a joke. If it's a <laughs> um, you know, they, they just don't stand firm on a lot of things. And what they asked from me and when they actually did want it were two different things. But I was this total, you know, like newbie who was too panicked to screw this up because it was sort of this dream situation that happened. So that's what kept me going is that, is, is honestly, I, I can get pretty haunted by deadlines. And so a deadline was looming over me and I I just didn't know what would happen if I missed it. Yeah,
0: (laughs) no, that's great. I mean, I think, you know, assigning, (laughs) assigning a date that you're going to be done with something is a really important part of getting it done, you know?
1: But, you know, it's so funny because there are other things in my life that I give myself deadlines or I receive them and I kind of blow them off. It's like, oh, really? But, you know, but for whatever reason, a, a, this publishing deadline. And it was it was sort of a dream come true sort of situation. Like how many people get asked to write a book. And, you know, that didn't mean I'm anything not right. like, cooler than the next person. But it was just this cool, like, kind of just. The perfect storm of stuff, and so I, just, I didn't want to let that go, so I okay. kept on
0: it. Okay. So how did, I mean, how did that, there has to be more than like a book publisher just came up and said, hey, I won't, you know, do you want to publish a book? <laughs> right.
1: You know, in publishing, the, the big word everybody says is platform, 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 platform is what you keep hearing. It's, if you have something to say that's great, but what, what establishes you beyond every other person who runs around blogging or whatever and saying have something to say is, well, what gives you the right to be the one that says it? And so um, I had, uh, what what for me worked out really well was I had a great idea, and I had I had a matching platform. I had people that knew me. I had the right connections system to some organizations. I already was blogging, and so I, you know, I, I'm writing a mom book. I'm a mom, so, I mean, clearly those two lines. Right. So um, it was, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of things all kind of lined up together there. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so. Yeah.
0: no that's that's great and but what's interesting is that it's a lot of things that lined up together that you made right and over the course of time aligned themselves in that way right yeah. so the reason I'm like putting it that way is that I think um, like people people there's the risk of people hearing like oh man well book publisher didn't walk up to me so I can't publish a book <laughs>
1: right? right right yeah no you're right you know and I yeah I probably yeah I wouldn't recommend just waiting around for an editor to walk up to and ask you for an <laughs> idea <laughs> but right. yeah I think people who want to publish or you know do any sort of um, projects that they're communicating what they believe you know on the web or in, in print as far as a, like an actual book or whatever right. and most things are are web-based anyway its It really is like if if you have something to say and you can prove that you are the right person to say that thing, I mean, that is really what it's all about. So a lot of it is just building that platform and finding your voice and what makes your voice unique.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so do you think that, um, like, when did you start blogging regularly and do you think that 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 helped you?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I started blogging right around the time that I received um, the book uh, contract, actually, So they're basically in publishing right now, it's very rare, unless you're Michael Crichton or you're one of these amazing authors who's going to sell hundreds of thousands of copies right off the block, you have to have a web presence. You have to be active on Twitter, active on Facebook, active on on the web. And that's one of the first things they ask you is, well, what's your web presence like? And if you don't have one, it's not necessarily a deal breaker, but the next thing they're going to say to you is, okay, get a web presence. because If you're not out there on the web, you're not you're not going to get a lot of readers on your stuff.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I, t- I tell – I have like some – as you know, some younger cousins and, and I tell all of them yeah. like, man, you guys like – I mean I have – you know, you guys got – you guys have to be like you, – you need your own website. You got to be blogging, write about the stuff you're interested in. They look at me like I'm crazy, you know, <laughs> like because <laughs> – and it's so weird because there – I feel like there's – there's a lot of people who they're like, well, yeah, I'm on the web. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I've, you know, I've got yeah. every, you know, I'm connected to 1,000, 1,500 people, right, on, on Facebook. But and, and so I think that, like, yeah, I mean, I believe that everybody should have a blog and a website and, like, write about whatever it is their thing is, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, and here's the, the one killer with that, though, is, like, I, I, I agree mostly with that, I think – if you want to identify yourself at any particular venue I think having a blog is great, like the, the death of a blogger though, and a personality is if you have a blog and then you click on it and you see that the person hasn't updated it since like January of 2005. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, it just screams from the page, like this person tried and just didn't follow you know, follow through yeah. or sure, could care less or whatever. So I get like, it's just, a, it's just such a, Buzzkill when you run across that. So it's like if you're going to do it, you've got to do it. I heard once for an author, an author should be blogging three to four times a week, which I think isn't, I can't pull that off. But a lot of really active authors are, are writing as much, if not more, on the web than they ever did, you know, cover to cover in a paper book.
0: Yeah, right, right, right. Well, no, that's true. If you're that's a, so, that's a good lesson, right? Like if you just if you have a website and you decide to stop it, then just officially like put it away, right? Yeah. <laughs> like put it to bed, pull it
1: down. <laughs> if somebody right. googles your name because you want to, you want a book or you want a like job, and they find out, you're like, oh, awesome! This person's out there.
0: And it, and it was pretty bad. You know? So so what? Uh, okay, so you got the. You know, this publisher or the editor came to you and said, hey, we, we would love for you to write a book. Do you have any ideas, you said yes. And then, and then what? You, and then you went about writing a book, obviously. But. Well, it was funny because
1: here I am at a writing conference and, and I guess I'm just kind of naive when it comes to these sorts of things, but I didn't realize that everybody at a writing conference, like walked around with like a, a half written book or a proposal. And so instantly the editor's like, well, that's a great idea can I see a couple chapters? Can you email what you've got down already? And I just looked at him like he was speaking Spanish to me. And I was like, well, I, I haven't actually written this book yet. <laughs> and he whipped right. out his business card and he's like, you've got till the end of August to get me three chapters. And this was in June. And I was like, oh, okay. And it's just, again, it was one of these sort of weird kind of, you know, turn of events. It turned out that a literary agent was, um, I was eavesdropping on that conversation. <laughs> and so she, like the minute I was done talking to this guy, she she pounced on it and she was like, um, here's the deal. And it turned out the guy was a pretty big name in publishing and he rarely made those sorts of statements to wannabe authors. And so she was all over it and um, within a day I had a, an agent <laughs> so that I could navigate the whole publishing world and contracts and stuff because huh. that's a world I didn't understand well, so.
0: Okay. So it's interesting because, like, I'm I'm before we before we spoke, I was thinking that maybe you, you know, you had gone the self publishing route and all that kind of stuff, and then I learned that you, you know, that you had a publisher and all that kind of thing. Is there anything that you learned about like the self publishing side of things um, in your experience? And do you think I mean, are you glad that you, you know, that you Do you have the publisher, or do you feel constrained at all by having a publisher? Like, I don't know any of the sort of, like, politics of bookmaking, you know what I mean, or, like, the the world of bookmaking and what happens in that place, you know?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for someone like me who probably, I would say I still know very little about the publishing world, although I know a lot more than I did two years ago, but for someone like me who sort of is deer-in-the-headlights first-timer, to have a full you know, a full publishing house behind you was great. It made it so much easier, you know, the, everything they do for you from the marketing, you know, I didn't have to like call up, you know, email Amazon and say, please list my book. You know, they, they do that for you. They, they do all the little details that like, I wouldn't know where to begin doing. So for that reason, it was great. I do know some authors who self-published and they're, pretty enmeshed in the literary world, and they love the freedom of self-publishing because when you do go with a big publishing house, you know, you don't get a lot of say in things like the title of your book, um, the, the cover art, and things like that are decided from a marketing team that you, you you may never meet, you know, and so those sorts of things, if you're kind of a control freak and you know what you're doing, um, I can see how self-publishing would be pretty enticing to some people. Um, and it's, it's a 50-50 split in the publishing world right now. There's people that think, self-publishing is the next wave in books, and there's others that say self-publishing is sort of the kiss of death for your career. So um, there's good conversation on each side of that debate. Right.
0: So my guess would be that the the people that are – primarily in the publishing industry. I hope I'm not going to get you in trouble with this, by the way. (laughs) It's all good. There's like an an, an uneven balance between people who currently like work in the publishing industry that think that self-publishing is the kiss of death, right? I mean, it's.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I had it to do hands down, I mean, yeah, hands down if I had it to do over again, I, I can't see how I would self-publish. Um, and I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I, I, I would, if a publish, if a publishing company, multiple publishing companies said you don't have a good idea, and then maybe I don't. <laughs> you know, and so to self-publish it, great, because if that means you really believe that strongly in your idea, but there's something if multiple people say mm, no, like I think you're kind of have to listen to that, you know. Hmm. No, but I don't want to get myself. In trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Even though I probably already did. So. No, 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 no.
0: Um, no, I think it's you know it. I I think the last the la that the last piece of advice is good advice, right? I mean, if you have an idea that you want to publish, you can you know you can publish yourself on Lulu now, you know. So
1: exactly, exactly, you can do it. There's ways, definitely ways to do it. So,
0: all right, so um, let's kind of go like weave back into your into your book um, a little bit. So the. I don't know the 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 overall like theme that I took away from it is like you have the the note that I that I wrote down was that you you can't you've mentioned a couple times almost like the too cool for school gang is the way I put it right like people who are just either well kind of like how you open the book right either way to way way into the green movement and turn a lot of people off. Right. Or people yep. who are just think that they're not like, whatever, yes. that whole stupid green movement thing. I'm not going to deal with it. Right. 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 Um, they write the whole thing off. Yeah. So just I don't know. Talk maybe maybe discuss sort of the, the way that when you were writing the book and sort of the different themes that you that you have in there. And obviously you talk about it from the perspective of someone who is very religious. So, you you know, you yeah. you mentioned um, God in there pretty often and you kind of say like, hey, I'm not trying to preach to you, but I'm also not going to like. Um, I'm just going to be real with like how I am about things and how I think about stuff. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I I do think through my life through lens of faith and for me that made the green conversation bigger. It made it more about uh, less about like hybrid cars and recycling and whatever the trendiest thing, gadget you could buy is. Well, those things, some of those things have value for sure. But it, for me as a person of faith, it elevates the conversation to just asking myself, you know, what is, what is a justice-oriented, you know, global response to, to life, and, you know, if I, you know, believe in God and that I, as a person, have been put here on Earth to like do good and to, make a difference, like, well, how does my American mm-hmm. consumer life help anybody, you know, um, and so. For me that was really the bigger picture of the book I actually ends the book talking about just the, the justice idea um, of, of motherhood being that you know here I am a mom and I look at my kids and I think I want to give them like the best that they can get in this world and yet at the same time like my my efforts at giving them the best you know clothes or school or whatever are actually preventing other moms and you know, developing countries from doing that very thing for their kids and so it's, it's this sort of perspective on, like, okay, it's more it's about more than recycling. It's about caring for people and looking at how my lifestyle actually can hurt other people instead of just pushing on through to, you know, get the best. And so um, that's that was kind of the bigger picture behind the book and why I really got fired up about writing it was to try to help moms and families help other families um, across the world because um, environmental stuff – in invariably falls on the shoulders of the poor. Like the landfills aren't in the great neighborhoods, you know, <laughs> right. we, we ship our electronic waste to the shores of Ghana, you know, I mean, we, you know, our stuff, yeah. our junk ends up at the feet of the poor. And I think that's important to figure out what to do about. So yeah, yeah. a little cool sermon there, huh? <laughs>
0: yeah. No, but you, so yeah. one, one of the things that you, that you, you talk about in the, I think it's probably in like the first third of the book or so. Um, is, like, the definition of stealing and what stealing is, yeah. right? And so yeah. you, 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 you quote somebody where they say that stealing is just using more than your fair share of something, right? Yeah. And it's a really interesting way to look at stealing, right? <laughs> because if all of a sudden it's not just, like, taking something that isn't currently yours, right, but if you're taking something that's more than your fair share of, like, all people on Earth, it's a very yeah. different way of looking at the meaning of stealing, right?
1: Well, it is. Like, I usually limit stealing to, like, Grand Theft Auto. I'm
0: like, well, clearly <laughs> I'm, I'm not.
1: I'm not really planning on that anytime soon. So, I'm a, you know, I'm not a kleptomaniac. I don't shoplift. So I'm like, all right, great. Stealing, whatever. But, like, when you look at stealing as taking more, it's just anytime you take more than your share of the resources, like, financially, environmentally, you know, whatever, there's, um, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the website off the top of my head, but um, there's a there's a, a website that's like a carbon footprint calculator, and it just asks you basic questions about your lifestyle, and this particular website estimates that if every person on planet Earth lived the same lifestyle as the average American, then we would need like three planet Earths, the resources of p- three planet Earths to like, sustain that globally.
0: Right. And so clearly,
1: we're overreaching. <laughs> in the US, a little bit, but
0: right. anyway. Yeah, I believe that that is, and I'm just checking really quick. I believe that that's carbonfootprint.com.
1: Okay, so. thank you. Yes, I knew it's there somewhere. So right. Uh, yeah, they have a carbon footprint calculator on there, and it'll figure out like
0: yeah how
1: many how many planet Earths your particular lifestyle would
0: take. Right. It's, um, right.
1: It's pretty eye opening exercise. I would recommend anybody do that. It's pretty it's pretty eye opening.
0: Right. Well, and and you know, I think that maybe, maybe now more than, than usual, although you wouldn't really know it by just reading like the, you know, the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune or whatever, but like, I think maybe, you know, maybe the disaster in the Gulf will like be the, like the rock bottom for our nation or something. I don't, you know, like every... Yeah,
1: you know, I I don't know, you know, the yeah, the whole oil disaster is funny because on the one hand, people are like, oh, shame on BP. They should clean their act up. But yet, like, people will say that while they're driving their car. You know, you yes. well, okay, clearly it's BP. You know, BP isn't just pumping oil for fun. Like, who's buying the oil? Yeah, you know?
0: I, you know, I I agree completely. I mean, I, I've been uh, using the analogy of, like, it's kind of, it's, don't get me wrong, like there's plenty of blame to go around to BP, right? Yeah. Oh but, yeah. Oh yeah. But but it is kind of like, you know, a cocaine addict getting mad at a straw for like giving, you know, like blowing their nose out, you know? What
1: I mean? Exactly. It's like, okay, wait, what? Who are you blaming? <laughs> Why? Right, right.
0: Because it's easier, yeah, yeah I mean it's it, because it's easier to just blame that one company, right? Then You know, there's people in the Northeast who, like, voted to not allow windmills to be put off of their shores, right?
1: Yes, off of Cape Cod. I think it was, like, seven or nine miles off the coast of Cape Cod or something, right? Yeah.
0: So, so I mean, are those people less to blame for the oil disaster than BP? You know, I don't know. Yeah. So. well, it's, Or
1: it's, like, everybody out, um, understandably, Pacific Northwest and other really forested areas of the country, everybody gets all bent out of shape and i get that over logging and i think that there are some places in this country we should not be you know clear cutting and things like that but at the same time like a lot of the people who bag on the the logging industry and the forestry industry like are just like paper hounds you know it's like you, you can't like bag on oil or or the for or you know Forestry without like changing your own life, like you know, you just right. can't do it. <laughs> right. So those companies are getting paid somewhere. Like it's us, you know, that are driving them. So right.
0: anyway, but now, so one of the another one of the themes in the book is like it. I have a cousin who's a vegan, and he says about it. You know, basically, I've just gotten to the point where I think people should be aware of what they're eating, and like, however far they want to take it is how far they want to take it, right? Yeah, and. That It seems to be kind of like a similar message in your book, right? Which is like at least – what I took away from it is it seems like you're starting with at least just start by being aware, right? And, yeah. And then make changes. I mean you even talk about like do stuff that makes sense for your family, right? Somebody who Somebody who has a rural home and 10 acres of land, like living green to them is going to mean something entirely different than someone like myself who lives in the city of Chicago, right?
1: exactly yeah it's like do do what works for you or you're you're going to drive yourself nuts with the other stuff like honestly I have three kids so for me to carpool with another family is impossible because then I'm saying hey why don't you give me and all three of my kids in their car seats and your three kids a ride but we give a bus to figure that out you know right. so there's things that like are really you know great green things that like I can't do because of my family you know and so we walk when we can but you know yeah it's just do what you can and as long as you're informed then you can make decisions that are educated instead of just saying silly things like we say like oh we should just you know shut down bp well like why would you say that like inform yourself before you say that
0: right so So, okay so we'll, we'll we'll wrap up here in a few minutes but one of the things i'm interested in um a lot is is do you have any productivity sort of like routines that you follow or things that you, um, you know, that you, that you do to just maximize your sort of like personal, um, like creative ability. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess sometimes my creativity and my productivity can be polar opposites of each other. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I, uh, like the, you know, I'm, like everybody is, I'm, I'm a slave to my phone. I do everything email-wise I can through my phone when I'm waiting in a waiting room or whatever so I can be productive when I get home, so I can be creative when I get home and not just have to spend my entire day answering emails. Mm-hmm. So I'll try, I try to catch myself up on, like, the tyranny of the urgent all day long, which, you know, that drives some people nuts, but I'm just one of these people. I, I, just, I have to answer emails constantly so that when I do have, you know, undisturbed time, you know, to write and stuff like that, I can creatively do that stuff instead of obsessing over the next email. And I do, I have to just shut, I have to shut my email off and Facebook and all those other sorts of things if I want to write because something I'm writing will trigger an idea that links to a conversation I was having on Facebook and then I'll find myself saying, oh, I wonder if there were any follow-up comments, you know, and then I'll spend a half hour on Facebook. It's ridiculous. You know, which sometimes actually can be a catalyst some more creative thoughts, but most of the time, no. <laughs> so I'm either, like, completely enslaved by my technology to survive the urgent matters or I completely shut myself off from it so that I can just be creative. And, you know, one of the things I think to write is that you need to you need to be a reader if you want to be a writer. Like, you can't just write and say things without reading what other people have said on it. And so part of it is just the discipline of sitting down with a Good old book and reading what other people
0: are saying. So, right, that's, right. That's, you know, I try to be an active reader. So awesome. Yeah. Cool. So I don't. Um, I don't think we talked about like the ver- the, the final piece of um, you know how just the the actually making it out to the you know the the world. And it's now available and and all that kind of stuff. So we can sort of, you know, I guess wrap up with, um, you know, just tell a little bit about when you mentioned you had deadlines to hit. Um, But, yeah, I guess just talk about that a little bit and then how it actually went out the door, right, and what sort of things were involved with that and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You
1: know, it goes back to uh, your question about first. Self-publishing versus publishing with a, um, a publishing house. Exactly. And my publishing my publishing company was Zondervan, which has a parent company of HarperCollins, and so they've they've been at this a while and clearly know what they're doing. Um, and so for me, it was really easy to get the book out the door physically because it was done for me. I had a marketing team that took it to Barnes and Noble and pitched it to Borders and pitched it, you know, wherever it needed to go to get into the right advertising. Um, you know, it was submitted to Publishers Weekly for review, like on my behalf, I didn't have to chase after any of those things, which is really great. Um, the, the really amazing thing in publishing, which as a newbie, was just a hard lesson for me. One, I'd heard that I was going to have to learn and that is how hard it is to actually get people to buy your book. (laughs) Um, I can't remember the exact number. I think it's between eight hundred and nine hundred thousand and 900,000 books or something like that are just out there every year. And it, it, the, the market is flooded with material. And the average book, like, over the course of its lifetime, sells, like, 3,000 copies. Okay. This is dismal. You know, you, you can expect to sell 250 copies a year. That's, that's average. And so you, you publish and you have, like the Anne Lamotte or the, like, you know, she's a faith-based person who's done really well, or you, you know, you, or you see, like, Oprah pitch a book on her show, and you think, ooh, I'm, you know, people are going to buy my book. I just got to get on Oprah or whatever. But, like, reality, <laughs> <that> doesn't happen. <laughs> and, you know, you're you're just, and that's why the platform's important and your web presence. And it is, despite everything your marketing team will do for you, at the end of the day, it's up to you to sell your mm-hmm. book. And get people to hear your voice and figure out who you are, and that is really, really hard. <laughs> right. So um, right. that you know, that's the hard facts of publishing is just because you've got a publishing house and it gets out there. It's out the door. Like you can, you know, you can read the reviews on Amazon, and that all makes it look like it's some raving success. But really, it's, it's you still got you still have to, as the author, get people to actually buy the book and right. That's really
0: right. So, and what are the, I mean, without, you know, giving more, like, going into too much detail, I mean, but just in general, what are, like, what are the economics of book publishing?
1: Um, Great question. You know, you get, you get a literary, you get an advance when you sell the book, basically your publisher, and, you know, the the publisher's in a hole for whatever they gave you for an advance, and so the higher your advance, the more they're going to want to market and promote you because they've got to make that up. Okay. And, you know, as an author, you don't start earning money on your book until you make your advance back. And statistically, very few authors ever get their advance back. Okay. just it's just that hard. So there's a myth that if you're an author, you're, like, a big, rich person getting royalty checks, and that's not reality (laughs) (laughs) at all. (laughs) So, you know.
0: Well, there's a a blog post that Seth Godin wrote recently that said – the only people that should ever write a book and expect to make money off of writing it are people who have already made money off of writing a book. <laughs>
1: exactly. That is well said. That is so true. Because the rest of us just cry and wonder why we're broke. That's the reality of life. <laughs> That's totally the reality. So you're broke and and you're upset because no one's buying your stuff. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, not to end on a
1: sour note, but that's reality. But
0: so. yet, you have something that, like, that you created. That's you know that I downloaded on my iPad. You know, or yeah. that, that somebody could have bought at a bookstore, or you know, downloaded a PDF or whatever. You know, um, that's,
1: that's true, and that no one will ever take that away, even if it doesn't sell. Like for me, that is that, that was on, that's been on the bucket list, if you want to put it that way. Like, right. you know, I was like, holy cow, I I just wrote a book. That's okay whether it sells or not like i there's something out there that represents what i think i believe and and that's pretty cool in it itself so it is it is a cool accomplishment
0: yeah that's awesome well i really appreciate you uh joining me on this podcast and i think it was a, like a great you know a great thing to uh you know, for, for, for people in technology or small businesses or really, you know, anybody just kind of hear about, it. Magazine, uh, you know, what it's like to make something. So I appreciate TV you joining. Magazine,
1: Great,
0: well, thank you Andrew. On the doc.
1: Absolutely. Uh, hey, everyone. This
0: is Andrew, and I'm going to take a few minutes and wrap the show up like I normally do with some uh, some just thoughts about. Of the key things that, um, that I felt like I learned in the interview. So, real quick, I want to mention that the background music you're hearing is by an artist named Helen Austin, and the name of that song is So I Sing to You, and it is on her album Song of the Week. So, she is um, an artist that makes her music available for podcasters. So, um, thank you, Helen, for the music. Okay. I guess one of the one of the first things, and in, in the, the name of the book again, um, in case you missed it in the beginning, is "Green Mama: The Guilt Free Guide to Help You Helping You and Your Kids Save the Planet." And one of the things that that I thought was just really interesting in the book, and we talked about this a bit, was sort of like making changes based on the environment um, that you're already in, and I think that's something that we can you know that we can apply to pretty much any life scenario. So obviously she was she was talking about it in the book in regards to you know if you're if you're an urban mom or a city dweller versus you know someone who lives on a farm, obviously the way that you go about changing your lifestyle is going to be different. It would be much easier for me to say you know, I'm not going to drive because I live in a city where there's ample public transportation. Um, whereas if I lived in the middle of Iowa, then that would be maybe much more difficult. But in Chicago, I'm also not going to be planting fruit trees. So um, so I think that that we can take that and apply it to pretty much any like situation that we're having with our... Professions. So, and the idea is essentially that you know you you leverage um, the resources that are available to you. So, if you are um, a musician, right, and you want to get your music online, well, there's a whole like plethora of resources available to you to help you do that. Um. I'm learning a little bit more development lately because I'm already sort of in um, that world, right? If I was a musician, maybe I would just like learn how to put together, you know, a web page for my music, but not learn programming and spend more time, like, I don't know, learning another instrument or working on my vocals or something. So I just think that. She kind of touched on a key point there, which is making changes and decisions based on, you know, your current environment, not over an environment that, you know, that you wish you were in. So, that was like a big one for me. Um, We also talked a bit about, she referred to it as like a random bizarre connection as to how she um, got the book deal initially. And I think that random, bizarre connection, as we sort of talked about, is not really random, bizarre connection. It's a bunch of time doing things like speaking and doing some freelance writing and having had a blog and having decent relationships with people and sort of being within a community. And there you go. Um, A lot of pieces were sort of um, lined up because she had done some things to make that happen. So... Um, I know I sort of touched on that in the middle of the podcast, but I thought it was worth um, worth repeating. so I disagreed with her a little bit on the like whether publishers you know have the taste to decide whether or not a book is worth being published and that kind of stuff. but she also said that if you have something to say. You know, with with the tools that we have available, you can prove that you're the one to say it, right? So even in a world where there still are some gatekeepers, um, they're still influenced by, you know, areas where there are no gatekeepers. So, you know, if you have a blog and you want to write about something, you should write about it. And you can prove to the world that you are the person that should be saying what it is that you're saying. Um, and I thought that was like a really, a really key point. All right, a couple other uh, quick things that I want to mention. Um, again, with the with the the opportunity to to write the book from from the editor. Um, you know, she pounced on the opportunity, right? So she was presented with an opportunity, and she took it. This person said, give me three chapters within, like, six weeks, and she did it. She could have said, oh, man, I really would have loved to be able to write those three chapters, but I had this XYZ going on, right? And XYZ could be pretty much any excuse that we can think of. So there was an opportunity, and she took it, and I think that that we need to be aware of when we have opportunities and the reality that, that opportunities, um, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily come at a time that's convenient, right? They are there and then we decide do we want to take that opportunity or do we not want to take that opportunity? And sometimes those are the two choices that were presented with. Um, and then just very lastly, she talked about, when she needed to write, she sort of had to shut everything down. Um, you know, off with email, off with Facebook, off with Twitter, and just sit and write. And I think that is certainly some good advice. Sometimes take a step back, turn everything off, and just create whatever it is that we are making. Um, so, again, I'm really thankful that. Trace, who joined me on this episode, and I am now going to be on my more regular once-a-month schedule, so I apologize for a little bit of a um, lapse between my last episode and this one. But I appreciate uh, those of you who are listening, and I hope that you continue to check out the podcast. So thanks again, and I will talk to you all later.
1: Care, but I knew you were scared You didn't even know my name I loved you just the same I didn't even know I knew What else could I do So I sing to you All alone I'm sitting in the park And still here it's getting really dark I should go I should go but I want so to I sing to you. Want to sing to you. So I 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 sing to you. So